Our scripture reading today is from Matthew 1, 18 through 25. This is found on page 807 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please take that home with you. It is a gift from us. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from his sin, their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph walked from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. There we go. <laughs> Good morning and welcome. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community, and I'm so glad to see each of you here today, whether this is your very first Sunday with us at Christ Community, or you've been coming for a long time, or maybe you've uh, been joining us online, and, and then this is your first time being here in person with us, or first time back being in person in a long time. Uh, whatever the case may be, we're so glad that you are here sitting in this room today, uh, worshiping with us, celebrating with us uh, Christmas Eve, and we're in the, or not Christmas Eve, but that's coming this week, Christmas Day, and uh, Christmas season and the Advent uh, season that we're in right now. Um, we've been in Advent, this uh, series called What Are We Waiting For? And Advent in the Christian tradition is a season of looking back on Jesus's first coming, as well as a season of anticipating and preparing for his second coming. And that's where we're just asking, what, is, what are we waiting for when Jesus returns for? What is heaven going to be like? So that's what we've been journeying through here this, uh, this Advent season together, and we're going to continue in that. And, and we look here in Matthew chapter 1 and the Christmas story today. So uh, as we begin, I'd like to pray as we start and look in this passage together. So uh, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, our Savior and Redeemer, we glorify you for your wonderful purpose of salvation. For you came not to condemn the world, but that the world through you might be saved. And so our hearts burn within us as we await your return as king and as judge. Help us to be ready. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder what your favorite Christmas movie is, or if you have a favorite uh, film that you like to watch around uh, the Christmas season with your family. I know for us growing up, uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was, of course, one we always watched, the, the claymation version. And then uh, there's also, uh, of course, Charlie Brown. Christmas is always one that we love. And last year, for the first time as a, as a family, uh, we watched together Elf, and the kids uh, love that, especially that scene where, you know, he ch- 
chugs the two liter of soda and then has that incredibly long burp. They just thought that was the best. Um, so we've got Elf is a classic. But I think I have to confess though, my favorite Christmas movie is the uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, Chevy Chase, Clark Griswold. Uh, that, is, that is my favorite. I grew up watching that with my dad, kind of a Christmas tradition. And what I, I love about that movie is not only uh, that it is, you know, the slapstick humor of it, but also um, that it just kind of actually tells the truth about the reality and the expectations. But I also um, remembered that film in particular this year, because this is the first year ever in my life that we uh, hung up Christmas lights on our own uh, house. And so I felt a little bit like Clark Griswold up on the ladder, uh, nervously trying to... What I realized about Christmas lights is you really, it takes two hands. So at some point you're on the ladder and you've got to hold the wire and do the stapler. Uh, I don't like heights, so it was, it was a big achievement for me to uh, stand on the ladder with no hands uh, stapling these lights up. And, you know, got to this moment, right, where we plugged them in and they did work. I didn't have nearly as many as Clark Griswold had in his house. I just had a couple strands, but they all, they all turned on uh, and they worked wonderfully. Um, but like I said, why I like that movie is certainly because of the, the classic slapstick humor nature of it. But also, I think it really does tell the truth about our expectations for what Christmas can be. And the perfect family gathering and the perfect food and everyone coming together and it's going to be great. But then the reality of the brokenness of the world that, you know, in the movie plays out in the comedic way, but just we feel the, the, this gap between what we want Christmas to be and the reality of what it ends up being the longing for this perfect family Christmas, but the reality of our brokenness that makes that impossible. And perhaps, you know, no other season, whether in, you know, COVID world or not, sort of amplifies that desire, the longing for home, for abundance, for peace, for goodness and family than the Christmas season. And yet, precisely because those desires, those longings are amplified or are turned up so high, we feel more acutely the reality that, that they can't be met, those expectations. And, and maybe in particular, we feel the absence of people that we love and long for being with us in this Christmas season. And maybe this year it's because of this, the realities of, um, of COVID. You, maybe you're not traveling like you had planned, or maybe others aren't traveling to come to be with you like you'd hoped, or your gathering's going to be smaller this year because you can't gather as many people in, inside in your home as, as you might ordinarily. But maybe you feel the absence of, of someone because you lost someone this year to death. And this is going to be the first Christmas that they're not gathered with you. Or, or maybe this is the first Christmas after, after a divorce. And, and it's the first time that maybe the kids aren't going to be with you all day. Or maybe it's just that same old story of your parents feeling like they've rejected you, or a sibling, or an aunt, or an uncle that you just can never get along with. Or maybe you feel like, I just can't go home to see my parents. They, they don't want me there. Or maybe it just feels like you or someone you loved is, is, is trapped in an addiction that just continues to erode and destroy, and it just feels like it has a vice grip, and you can't get through it. Maybe it's just depression and an anxiety that are robbing you, that are robbing you 
of the ability to access joy this season, to be present with people like you hope and like you want. And here's the thing. At the end of the Christmas day, we don't really want presents. What we want is one another's presence with us. We long for those who, for whatever reason, cannot be with us. We long for one another's presence. And the Christmas story is that longing for presence on steroids. How do we get Jesus here with us? And again, we're in this series on Advent and looking at heaven, and hidden in the story of Jesus' birth are realities that we cannot miss. Because Jesus, from day one, has been showing us what our destiny, destiny is, what we are waiting for. And it started on Christmas Day. And so this morning, as we look at this section in Matthew chapter 1 uh, that Suji read for us, we are going to sort of look at three gifts, three uh, main insights from this text we want to unwrap together. And the first gift that we find in this text is that Jesus is the scandal of heaven. He's the scandal of heaven. And again, it, it can be hard for us to feel sort of the scandalous nature of the Christmas story because we're so familiar with us, right? I mean, even if, if you grew up not really going to church all that much, but if you just grew up in, in sort of American culture, you have probably some sense of the kind of the outline of the Christmas story. And Matthew's account of his gospel of the story of the gospel he's telling, it begins with this genealogy, this really carefully ca crafted lineage of Jesus, showing that Jesus is descendant of King David. He is the royal king that Israel has been waiting for. And again, if you aren't familiar with the Christmas story like all of us are, what you would expect to come after that really carefully crafted genealogy is now the story of a noble couple who's living in Jerusalem and is part of the social and political power structure, and they've just celebrated this amazing kind of fairy tale wedding, and now it's a year later, and they announce that they are going to have a child, the, the promised king is coming. But what we get instead in Matthew chapter 18, or chapter uh, 1, verse 18, after this genealogy, is Joseph. Not a, not a prince, but a, a carpenter in a town of Nazareth, far away from the social and political power centers. And, and we find Joseph in crisis. Joseph, whose wife-to-be, his betrothed, his fiance, more on that in just a minute, what that all means, but who's now pregnant. This is a crisis moment. Because no one, Joseph realized, no one is going to believe, I'm not the father, but is anyone going to believe that? And, and if I'm not the father, who is the father? How did this happen? Scandal. Listen to verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her, and, uh, unwilling to, put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Right? Like poor Joseph, right? Imagine this moment. Like he's, he's going to bed. Mary has just told him the news. Soon everybody would know. And it isn't use, any use trying to hide it or deny it. Mary is pregnant, and he isn't the father. I mean, he knew that, but, but did others, would others believe it? 
the only way to clear his name, to protect his, his honor, his family's reputation, which was everything in that culture, to do what was right was to divorce her. His marriage is in a sambles over before it even began. Because that's the thing, betrothal in this kind of uh, first century context was much stronger than our, our sort of current concept of, of engagement. It was similar, but much stronger. And actually, they, they, they hadn't come together to live together and to be husband and wife yet, but they are legally bound. So it's not a matter of Joseph just asking for the ring back. There actually has to be a divorce to separate them. So that's how Joseph is falling asleep that night. Maybe he fell asleep on his bed that night saying, Lord, please save my marriage. Would, this, would I wake up and have this all have just been a bad dream this day? But when he finally fell asleep, he did have a dream. And in that dream, the angel of the Lord appeared. And Joseph, he says, you're praying save my marriage, but God is going to save the world. He's sending his son to you. He is with you. But here's the catch. It is going to ruin your reputation forever. Because this family, Joseph's family, Mary's family, their new family together, never gets over the scandal, right? They are always the couple who had the kid before the timeline lined up, right? If Joseph wants heaven, he has to accept the scandal too. And so do we. So our, our first question this morning is, will we enter the scandal? We enter the scandalous story. Because if we are going to follow Jesus, to be identified with him, it means we are going to risk our lives, perhaps in earthly shame and scandal at times. And, and many people, many followers of Jesus around the world experience this regularly. I think of our, our partners in Iran and in China, northern Kenya, other places around the globe where following Jesus brings an amount of scandal that is very visible. But we experience this as well potentially. People being mocking or dismissive of our faith, people quietly excluding you from certain things. And sometimes I think that we get into this mindset, or at least I do at times, that if, well, if I could just be sort of cool enough, hip enough, intelligent enough, good enough at apologetics, answering all the questions, that when I tell people that I'm a Christian, I tell people I'm a pastor, that I would be able to present that in such a way that they wouldn't think it was odd or weird or strange or scandalous. But friends, we worship a crucified Savior who we believe and declare has risen from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father and will come again to bring a new heavens and a new earth about. And if you have not been made new by the life-giving Spirit, that belief can sound really strange, really bizarre. A life of loyalty to, obeying, following, learning from Jesus will bring will bring scandal at times. Mary and Joseph experienced Jesus promised it. If we want heaven, we have to accept the scandal of Christmas, the scandal of Jesus. Have you done that? Will you do that? Are you doing that? Willingness to accept the scandal. But not only is Jesus the scandal of heaven, he's also the mystery of heaven. He's the mystery of heaven. And that's the second insight for us to unwrap in this passage this morning, is that this mystery is summed up in one word that we find here in this passage, and that is the word Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which Matthew tells us means God with us. If you keep reading down from verse 20 into verse 21, you get this. 
It says, and she, Mary, will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called him his name, Jesus. This is the mystery of Christmas. The mystery of heaven. That God became human. That the God of the universe, the creator, dwelt in the womb of a woman. That God was born. That Jesus has a body. Ten fingers, ten toes, eyes, nose, dirty diapers, skin, knees, puberty. Jesus is God, but not just God. He is God with us. And not just God with us in spirit, but God with us in flesh, in a body. Uh, Even Joseph could hardly believe what was meant by this idea of Emmanuel, God with us. But there was this moment after Jesus is born, I mean, many moments, right? I'm sure Joseph is laying in his house and is awoken in the night by the cries of God, of this baby, God with us, who needs his mother's milk to live, who will die if he doesn't have it. The one who spoke the stars formed the planets, helpless, utterly dependent. And Jesus becomes human forever. I think sometimes we, we forget this reality of that Jesus has become a human, and he's taken on that forever. It, it, he did not, sort of like an actor, just play a human being for a certain period of time, as though there was sort of like, you know, a body rack up in heaven, and he, you know, picks out one and, and puts it on, and then comes down and, and wears this body, and then when he's done, sort of puts it back on the shelf. He's, he's not an actor or an actress who puts on a costume, goes out and plays a part, and then after the show goes back, takes the costume off, and goes back to their real identity. No, Jesus has taken on this identity of human both now and forever. To be human is to be embodied. To be a human is to have a body. Jesus was born with a physical body. He lived life with a physical body. He died in a physical body, and yes, he was raised to new life and his resurrection, but still physical human body. And when he ascended to the right hand of the Father— He didn't just give up his body at that point. He kept it. It was with us. In heaven, in God's space right now, is a human body. Jesus, with a beating heart, breathing lungs, blinking eyes, knees and elbows, tongue and toenails, in God's space forever. Because friends, the first time The heaven and earth become one is not in Revelation 21 when the new Jerusalem comes out of heaven to earth and heaven and earth are joined one together. The first time that happens is in Matthew chapter 1 when God becomes human in Jesus. We confessed these words of the Nicene Creed earlier today. But for us and our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. This is the mystery. Jesus becomes human without ceasing to be God, and heaven will embody this paradox as well. Heaven and earth will be one forever without heaven ceasing to be heaven and without earth ceasing 
to be urged. So our second question here is, are we in awe of the mystery? Are you in awe of the mystery? Again, we're so wonderfully familiar with the Christmas story, oftentimes I think we cease to be in awe of the mystery of it. It's become commonplace to it, but don't, don't let that happen this Christmas. Soak in the awe of it. Think out the, the implications of the reality of what this means. Let it fuel your imagination for what the new heavens and the new earth must be like. Let it give you hope to do your work well now in his power for his kingdom. Don't let the familiarity take the awe from you. Let your world be re-enchanted. Because you were made for wonder, for beauty. And your soul, it starves, it shrinks, it withers away without beauty and wonder. But friends, friends, in the gospel of Jesus, in the incarnation, in Emmanuel, in God with us, there is incredible beauty. There is a feast that will satisfy and nourish even the most disenchanted, wonderless, beauty-deprived life. Jesus is the scandal of heaven. He's the mystery of heaven. And then finally this morning, Jesus, he is the gift of heaven. He himself is the gift of heaven. That's our third insight to unwrap here today. When God looks down at the broken and dark world on Christmas Eve, he knows that heaven has to get back down there. But he doesn't send a cure for cancer or magic bread to feed the world or an angel to overthrow the armies of Rome and evil, even though all those things are true of heaven. Instead, he sends Jesus, Emmanuel, because he himself is heaven. Jesus is heaven come to earth. And he addresses our most pressing problem, what has always kept us from God's presence, and that is the forgiveness of sin. This this problem of sin that he deals with in the forgiveness of sin. This is at the heart of Matthew's account of Jesus' birth. In in Matthew chapter uh, 1, verse 21, uh, we we read this earlier, but listen again to this. She will conceive, Mary will, will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And the name Jesus, it is the the, the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. And the name Joshua means Yahweh, the Lord saves. Jesus' very name means God saves, the Lord saves. And we all need saving from the abuse, the sadness, the depression, the injustice, the fear, the addiction, the loneliness, the shame in the world and in our lives. And the Bible's shorthand for for all of those things is this three-letter word, sin. And Jesus has come to rescue us from all of that. God sent Jesus to set us free from our enslavement to the evil one, to forgive us, to reconcile us to him. And most important of all, that we might become his children. We might be adopted by him. Here's how C.S. Lewis put it, that the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God of God. The Son of God became human to enable men and women to become children of God. That is why he came, because that's the the whole point of this thing, is that we might be reunited and adopted and reconciled to God, um, not just so that we could avoid a cosmic judgment day someday, 
and then live happily with ever without Jesus. But sometimes I think practically that's how we conceive it. It's almost as though we conceive of salvation as like, you know, we are in a burning building, the fire department comes, a firefighter rescues us out of the building, takes us out, sets us down on the lawn, makes sure that we're okay, checks us out, says, okay, you're good to go, you're not hurt, and then goes way back to the firehouse never to, to interact with us or have a relationship with us again. Again, I think that's somehow how we can sort of conceive of salvation, that Jesus comes, rescues us out of this burning building, says, okay, I've saved you, so you're not going to suffer, you know, judgment forever. Are you okay? Okay, good. Now you can go back to living your life. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus comes, yes, he rescues us, but the way that he rescues us is by uniting our life to his that we are now in Christ over and over again in the New Testament, far more than any other way of, of Christians being described as described in Christ. We're united to him, connected to his very life. And yet for so many of us, I'm myself included in this, that often doesn't excite us or capture our imaginations or stoke our longings. And, and I think the reason for that is is that we just don't actually know Jesus that well. And because we don't actually know him that well, the, the prospect of spending forever with him just doesn't get us that excited. It's, and maybe we even feel guilty about that. Like, I, I should want heaven more. I should want Jesus more. But I just, I just, I just don't. And, and I think it's kind of this kind of a situation. Imagine if you have like a, a, four, a four-year-old kid and their parents say, we're going to go visit Aunt Margaret and Uncle John, and they're great. You, you remember them? You met them once. You were really little. I mean, you were only four, but you, when you were two-year-old, they, they came to visit, and we're going to go visit them. They have this great kind of farmland, and they always have the best food, and they're just the most fun to be. You've never had so much fun as just to sit around a table with them and just enjoy a meal and the playground in the backyard, and it's just going to be amazing. Four-year-old's kind of like, well, that's a really long drive. I don't want to be in the car that long. Can't we just stay here? Why? Because they don't know Uncle John, Aunt Margaret, like the parents do. And so they're not excited about spending time with them. I think we're often in the, the same kind of positions. We we, we kind of read, we've heard other people tell us, like, oh, like heaven, new heavens, it's going to be great. Spending time with Jesus is amazing. We just haven't done that much of it ourselves, and so it's like, oh, I, I think I should want that, but at the end of the day, I, I just I'm, I don't get that excited about it. So the question for us is, are you getting to know him? Are you getting to know him? And of course, I mean, let's just be honest, it is challenging to get to know Jesus. Because at a certain level, you could say a relationship with Jesus is like any other human relationship. It involves speaking and prayer, listening and through the voice of the Spirit, or reading the words of the Bible and listening for God's voice for him to speak to you through his word. So, I mean, at, at one level, the same basic tools of relating to him are, are, are the same tools that we use to relate to anyone. But of course, it's unlike any other human relationship because we can't see him. We can't go to his house. We can't call him up on the phone, send him a text message. 
And yet it's worth it to continue to try to strive to know him better. I think about my kids and my parents who live in St. Louis, and we see them a few times a year. It's not that far away, but we regularly, about once a week on average, we talk to them on FaceTime. And you know, for all of the things that, you know, probably our phones are destroying our lives and our capacities in all kinds of ways, right? But I'm, I'm so thankful for the gift of, of technology and FaceTime that my kids can see my parents, see their faces, hear their voices anytime. And, and here's the thing, because my, my kids see my parents on FaceTime regularly, it doesn't mean that they want to see them in person less. They're not like, well, I, we see grandma and grandpa all the time on FaceTime. We don't need to go visit them. No, it's just the opposite, right? They, because they see them so often on FaceTime, they want to see them more in person. And I'm convinced that if we went for a year or, or only saw them in person and never talked to them on FaceTime, my, the kids would want to spend less time with them because they wouldn't know them as well. They wouldn't, it's, it's that time with them on the phone regularly that excites them about getting to be with them in person. The classic Christian spiritual disciplines of reading the Bible, of prayer, of, of being together, gathering like this in Christian community, work a bit like FaceTime. As we listen to Jesus' voice in the Bible, and by the Holy Spirit um, in our life, and we respond to his voice in prayer, as we gather with our brothers and sisters who know us and love us and care for us, we get to know him. You start longing for him more. And just think about all the moments of joy in your life. There's always someone with you that you love. And now imagine love himself with you forever. How beautiful heaven will be. In Revelation, the throne of the Lamb is the center of the new creation. He's the point. He's the gift. If you can imagine Christmas, if you can imagine heaven without Jesus, then, then you've missed the whole thing. You haven't really understood what the good news that's offered by Jesus is all about. So go to him. Pray that he would reveal himself to you. Bring your doubts and your fears. Bring your frustrations, your disappointment with him. And just even, you can be honest with him even to say, you know what, Jesus? I don't really want you right now. And you can even go further and say, you know what, to be honest, Jesus, I don't even want to want you right now. He can take that. He can handle that. And here's the amazing thing that happens in those moments. The second that you turn toward Jesus, even to admit that I don't want you right now, or I don't even want to want you right now, you're talking to Jesus. And when you talk to Jesus, that is always the starting point of hope. Talk to him about your frustration, your disappointment, your lack of desire for him. He can handle that. What he cannot handle, what will lead you away from him, is, is ignoring him, pushing him away. You can take all of the frustration, all of the anger, all of the disappointment, all of the lack of desire to him all day long, and you are beginning to put yourself in a place where hope can come. 